I've entitled uh, the things I want to say today, and really what we're going to be in the Scripture, believe me, in fact, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, 16, 17, 24, 2 Samuel chapter 6, 11, 12, Psalm 63, and Psalm 51. So I hope you can see your Bibles this morning if you got them. If you're, uh, if you're stuck with the, uh, the little phone job, you're going to have to do some fancy footwork this morning. But I've entitled this The Eulogy for a First Responder. I was captivated by the uh, service at the Colosseum watching three families and three pastors or spiritual leaders um, try to grab on to the life of these men and in some way give a fitting testimony of who they really were in a few short minutes. And uh, the, the chapters of Scripture we're going to be in today really do that for another first responder. I want to dedicate what I say this morning to my friend Howard Winter, who I bumped into this week. I hadn't seen him for seven or eight years. And uh, to my surprise, as he filled me in on his life, I found out that currently he's a first responder to his wife, Fran, because she has uh, developed early onset Alzheimer's. And he's the guy who shows up every day at the nursing home to be with her, even though she has trouble knowing who he is. And I want us to spend some time learning from the life of a man who listened with his heart. The scripture tells us this guy was a first responder. He was not, the, he was not afraid to be the first one to kind of boldly step into the emergency. And his life was marked by courage and bravery, so much so that for thousands of years, people have been telling the stories of his exploits. But that isn't what really immortalized him, the things that he did that were so outstanding and daring. We remember him not so much for what he did, but for what he was. And we catch a glimpse of him the first time in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We have kind of a visual in our mind this morning of what 6,000 men in uniform look like. But in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, King Saul, the ruler of Israel, is surrounded by 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And instead of attaching a number to it, the Bible says that the warriors numbered like the sands of the seashore. King Saul was in a situation here. And, and, and the children of Israel were in a tough spot. They've been there before. They'll be there again, vastly outnumbered. And the Word of God records what may seem as kind of a silly, innocent little faux pas that King Saul commits. Instead of waiting for the priest, Saul, in the midst of this tough situation, took it upon himself to step in and offer the sacrifice for the Lord. He shouldn't have done it. At face value, you might think, well, that was a good thing maybe Saul did, but it was blatantly against the law of God. Only priests could sacrifice. No, no man then had the right, like we do, to step into the presence of God. And at that moment, this change takes place in the history of, of Israel. And we find it in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, when God's prophet goes to Saul to rebuke him for doing what he did. And here's the verse, but now your dynasty must end. It's over, Saul. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You've heard those words before. The Lord has already chosen him to be king over his people. It's the first glimpse we get in Scripture of the fact that somebody had already found favor with God and would be raised up to replace Saul. And from this man, of course, would come the line out of which Jesus the Messiah was born. And what's big for us this morning is this, that God picked this guy 
because he saw something in him and realized that he had a good and a godly heart. Now, hopefully you've already pinned this guy as being David. And, and you see, there's a reason that moms and dads thousands of years later are still calling their, their, their sons David. There's a reason we t- still tell his stories. There's a reason that God was inclined to favor him. And because we're thinking about men today, and because we are just so tuned into these cherished attributes of bravery and, 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 and sacrifice, and we're going to look deep into the heart of this Bible hero because perhaps he can inspire all of us to be men after God's own heart. You know, First and Second Samuel is some of the most exciting reading you'll ever do. I don't know. How many, how many read fiction? Oh, you poor people. You don't know, none of you read fiction. Uh, what do you do when you go to the beach or you have, a, have time off on a rainy day, you know? If you, if you like fiction, though, and you like the kinds of exciting adventures that can be conjured up in a good story... It's awesome to get into the Old Testament and, and realize that, that history records these things and they're fantastic story. Men love to hear stories like that. They highlight the things that men love, things like adventure and conquest and, and strategy and intrigue and, and battle and struggle and rising over adversity and, and making a great contribution. It's not hard to list the things that men value, but what about the things that God values? What was there in this man, David, that impressed the Lord? What things in the life of David can we identify as principles to be emulated and pursued in our life? Are there some stories that will jump out to us? And and isn't it interesting to note that, that most of us remember the ways in which David messed up. We know he wasn't perfect, but it seems that in spite of his colossal stumbles, he possessed this character of spirit that God values. And And the first glimpse of this shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's the story of Samuel. And and if you've got your Bible, just just kind of turn there. Because as you you put your eyes on that chapter, there's so much about that story that will be familiar to you if you're in the Word of God. If you're not, you ought to to take some time in that book, 1 and 2 Samuel. It's the story of God's prophet going on a mission for the Lord to anoint a new king over Israel. And if you look at the first part of that chapter, you find out that Samuel was afraid to do this. I mean, Saul was still the king. And and, and probably Samuel would have been beheaded if if Saul had found out what was up, what what Samuel's real mission was. He goes to the house of of some guy named Jesse. And and this dad, Jesse, begins to pray to all of his fine-looking boys in front of the prophet. And when Samuel saw the first guy... Eliab, he thought, man, this has got to be the kid. I mean, muscles, strong, big of stature, good-looking, capable. Samuel thinks this has got to be the guy. And God began to teach Samuel that day this important lesson. And nobody who knows the story of David has ever forgotten this. He says on the first kid, the first son, he says, you know, in in his heart, he said, that's not not the guy. That's not the one. And so he keeps asking, have you got another? And seven sons are paraded by the prophet. And, and, and... The, the Spirit of God just did, did not confirm anything. And the prophet says, there's got to be more. And Jesse said, well, there is one more. He's out with the sheep. And, of course, you know how it happened. The boy David, the boy David, the little guy, he's finally brought in. And the Spirit of God stirs in Samuel's heart. And God says, this is the guy. And the powerful lesson that's, that, that we learned that day from the Lord is that while Samuel tended to take stock in the exterior of a person... Their physique and their intelligence and their ability to communicate, 
While we may look at the outer person, God sees the heart. Verse 7 says, don't judge by his appearance or height. The Lord doesn't make decisions like you. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at a person's thoughts and intentions. I know you've heard this before, but I want you to think soberly about it this morning. God values men whose inner heart attitude pleases him. And you could go out and, and do a survey on the street and ask a thousand people what is valuable to a man, and you may never get that answer. But in the Word of God, we see that the Lord is looking for people who distinguish themselves by this somewhat intangible inner quality of spirit that is pleasing to the Lord. God looks on the inside. He sees what others don't see. Don't miss this. You can be this type of person. Or you can miss out on being this type of person. Some men may appear powerful and respectable and worthy of admiration on the outside. And yet they may fall far short of being the kind of man that God is looking for. The kind of guy that God approves. And there's so many implications to us for this. So many reasons to be encouraged by this truth. Because God says what you are on the inside is really what counts. Society may bombard you with all kinds of images of what, what you have to live up to, the beautiful people and the wealthy people and the, 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 the influential people. But God says, that's not even an issue with me. He cares about the real you. You may have felt that you've never been recognized as some others have, but be encouraged. God doesn't overlook you. He sees who you really are. You may feel that if they lined everybody up that nobody would ever pick you. But God says you can be his choice. He sees the beautiful person that you really are. And if you just turn one page over in your Bible to chapter 17, we begin to see the story of this boy unfold. And it's the quintessential underdog story of David and Goliath. And David's still a shepherd and he's on an errand from his father to deliver supplies to his brother. And he arrives at the front line and there's this seven-foot Philistine trash-talking the people of God and daring anyone to meet him in the schoolyard to have it out. And young David can't believe he looks around and, and, and nobody's standing up to this guy. And we, we know the tale of this kid who, who grabs a sling and a pocket full of stones. He also grabs a lifetime of fame because he steps forward and, and confronts evil single-handedly. He destroys this guy, Goliath. It's not his first time to step forward and be a first responder. Goliath loses his head. Israel regains their honor. And in the words of David, in verse 37... Of 1 Samuel 17, David says, The Lord who saved me from the claws of the lion and the bear will save me from this Philistine. And he walks up to Goliath in verse 45. And you, can, you, you see David's values here. It, it, it shines through. He, he says to, to this guy, this, this monster, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel's army you've defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you. And I will cut off your head and give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And everyone will know that the, that the Lord does not need weapons to rescue his people. It's his battle, not ours. The Lord will give you to us. Can't you see why God liked this guy? He, 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 he got that straight. And there's another principle there that, that screams out at us, and that's this, that God values men who have this extreme faith in his power. 
That, that, that there's something about his inclination to not trust what he could or couldn't do, but to view that, that potentially hazardous situation in the light of the God who backed him up. And God is looking for men whose experience has taught them that God's able. And they're willing to bet the farm that God can come through victoriously, even when we're in way over our head. He's looking for courage, I think, but more specifically, courage that's based upon this big confidence in God. So don't misinterpret this story. This is not, this is not the tale of some remarkable teenage fighting machine. Really, it isn't. This is the story of a kid who just flat out trusts in God and he's ready to put that belief to the test, even when it involves a giant. And God loves it, I think. When we face the bullies in our life, he wants us to step into the battle with only one thing on our mind. I've got a buddy who was diagnosed this week with with a terminal type of cancer. He's facing this monster in his life at the head of his family with all of his friends and kids and his wife and all those people, and he has to step up to this monster in his life. Men have plenty of opportunity to demonstrate to their families that they're this kind of man, they're this kind of person. That when they're facing big problems, they have a belief in a big God. If you turn one more page, you're into chapter 18, and it it begins the most difficult time of David's life. This young champion has been blessed of God, and Pretty soon he finds favor in the eyes of people. In fact, if you look at chapter 18, verse 5, we find that, that whatever the king asked David to do, he was successful, so he was made a commander in the army. And this appointment was applauded by all the guys with boots on the ground. They, it made sense to them, even though this guy was young. And the victorious army of Israel returns home after destroying the Philistines and they pass through the towns and the villages. The people are lining up as the parade goes by and, and, and we, be, we hear them singing this song. The scripture says, King Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And, and they credit David with this. And King Saul says, what's going on with this? Him, tens of thousands, me, thousands. Next, they're going to make this boy king. And we find in chapter 18 that, 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 that David goes suddenly from incredible favor with the king to suddenly being on the king's hit list and jealousy rises up in Saul's heart. And you read the story, you see David running for his life and he's hiding from the king. He's in fear of his life. And this young champion gathers a few misfits around him and they, they begin to to run through the country and they're living in the hills and the caves and they're trying to evade the armies of Israel and the king who's seeking to track him down. And, 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 and Psalm 17 records what was going on in David's life during this time. He was, he'd done nothing but his best and he, he was betrayed and, and treated unfairly. Listen, listen, to, listen to his prayer. He says, O Lord, hear my prayer, plea for justice. Listen to my cry. Pay attention to my prayer. It comes from an honest heart. Declare me innocent for you know those who do right. And in verse 9 he says, Protect me from wicked people who attack me, from murderous enemies who surround me. They're without mercy. They track me down. They surround me. They're like hungry lions to tear me apart. You know, this guy who penned some of those beautiful words in Scripture knew what it was to be in trouble, and he cries out to God for help. You go back in the story to 1 Samuel 23, this cool thing happens. Saul finally tracks David down, and, and he has him cornered. David's on one side of the mountain. This is in, chap, in uh, chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. 
David's on one side of the mountain. King Saul and the army's on the other. David has nowhere to go. And all of a sudden, in the, in the providence of God, this urgent message arrives for King Saul. And these armies are diverted. And David is delivered. And I think there's a principle there in the midst of David crying out for help. And a lot of men never figure this out. But the principle is this. God values men who know the real source of their help. God values men who really know where their bread's buttered. They know who's really stepping in. Men who trust in God, not their circumstances. And I really believe that God esteems men who look to God as as their source in the toughest times of their life. When the business collapses. When you get news of a serious illness in the family. When the financial crisis happens. When you're facing despondency and depression. When you've been dealt with unjustly. God values a man who is not overcome in that circumstance, but instead in the midst of the trouble, their first, the inclination of their heart is to reach out and to trust God. And, and, and men have a lot of difficulty here. We do. We find it really easy to, to lean upon our own resources. To kind of kind of buck up in the midst of the thing. To be bold. To, to look to our own strength and our own health and our own smarts and our own, our, our, our own ability to figure this thing out, to solve the problem. So many men would have to admit that their default response in trouble is to rely on themselves. But here's this mighty warrior, David. Even with all of his natural strengths and abilities, probably more than any man who ever lived, his in, the inclination of his heart, the scripture says, is to trust God. Wasn't it cool to see the, the hashtag, pray for Moncton? I mean, any, anybody who, who loves God just kind of, there's some, it did the heart good to see people turn to, 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 to have a, a, a desire to pray in that. And, and, you know, I was thinking, you, you, you know, there, there's, there's a bunch of hashtags went around there. There was pray for Moncton, and then there was Moncton Strong. And they're both great, but can you kind of see how subtly we can be drawn to look to our own strength first? To be strong first, instead of to pray first? God seems to take pleasure in people who find within themselves a desire To be strong, yeah, but to be strong in the Lord, in faith. And make no mistake about it, the Bible's pretty clear too that God seems to be repelled by the man who relies on himself. The Bible says God opposes the proud. Actively gets into the game of opposing the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. and, And he seems to be inclined favorably towards the guy who looks to the hills from where his help comes from. And then we move into chapter 24. And for me, it's one of the neatest stories in David's life. Leave it to the Bible to include this. Saul is traveling around the country with his army, trying to track David down. He, He journeys down the road, and the Bible says he has to relieve himself. Even kings have to make time for bodily functions. And the urge strikes the king as they're near this cave in the, in the wilderness. And so the king goes into the cave and he, he's standing up against the wall, hiking up his kingly, kingly robes. And guess who just by coincidence happens to be hiding in the cave? That's right, David and some of his men are, are standing back in the shadows watching what, this happen, what happens. I debated whether to tell you this, but believe it or not, this happened to me. <laughs> True story. 
Years ago, I'm a, I'm a young guy and I'm hunting in this secluded place and I'm by this old country church and next to this old country church is a line of trees and there's a field and I'd seen deer coming out in that field and I'm, I'm tucked in there late in the afternoon in, into that fence line. I've got a comfortable spot and I'm just enjoying the quiet and the remote location and there's a road running along out in front of the church and all of a sudden as I'm sitting there, a car comes along and pulls into the church parking lot and there's this big war memorial in the front yard of the church. Suddenly this lady gets out of the car and goes around behind the monument where she thinks nobody is and does what Saul was in the process of doing. And 50 feet away, Pastor Don's hiding in the bushes. The story... All my life I've regretted that I either didn't fire off a couple of rounds at the right moment or say with a booming voice, sorry lady, this stall's already occupied or something. True story. And this happens with Saul and you can't make this stuff up. All of David's men are thinking the same thing. They're thinking, this is your chance, David. You've got Saul right where you want him. They're probably in the quiet back there, kind of rolling their eyes at each other and doing this, you know. They're hoping that that David's going to take action. But the Word of God says that in the midst of all of this, and it must have all happened fast, but, but David's conscience spoke to him, and his conscience would not allow him to kill the king or dishonor him. And the tale plays out this way. While King Saul is watering the floor of the cave, David creeps up behind him and cuts a piece off his robe. The king never even realizes that David was there. And as he leaves the cave and walks down to the road again, the man that he's been hunting steps out behind him with a piece of cloth in his hand. And in in, in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, this is the 10th verse, he says, See, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you to me today in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I had pity on you. I said, I will not put my hand out against the leader my leader, for he's the Lord's chosen one. Now, my father, see the piece of cloth, clothing in my hand. I cut off a piece of your clothing. It did not kill you. So no one understand that I have no desire to do you wrong. I have not sinned against you, yet you come wanting to kill me. May the Lord judge between you and me. May he punish you for your actions against me, but my hand will not move against you. This is big, guys. This is a big event in the life of this man. This locker room story of what happens with Saul and David gives us this clear glimpse of why God liked this guy. In the midst, in the face of an easy victory, this lucrative, unbelievable opportunity, this moment of sweet revenge, what happens to David? He listens to his heart. He obeys the still, small voice of God. Man, this is tough to do. It's tough to listen to the inner voice anytime, but in those moments where it just seems like this is obviously what I ought to do, and when everything within you is, is drawn to making this choice, and suddenly God comes along and, and tries to move you in another way. And it, it happens in a bunch of ways in men's lives. Sometimes it's a verse of Scripture. Sometimes it's this clear impression. Sometimes it's the advice of a friend. Sometimes it's this gut-level check in your spirit. Sometimes it's the hairy eyeball from your wife. But God has this way of helping you know, hey, I'm trying to redirect you here, buddy. God speaks to us. And God loves it when men follow the inner whisper. And I've 
placed it this way. Principle number four, God values men who place their obedience to God above anything else in their life. Psalm 63 and a bunch of other psalms show David's real priorities. His real priorities weren't getting revenge. It was loving God. You catch the heart of David in so many of these psalms. Here's 63. God, you're my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a parched land where there's no water. Your unfailing love is better than life. I praise you as long as I live. You satisfy me more than the the richest feast. I lie awake thinking of you, he says, meditating on you through the night because you're my helper and I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. David might have been in a cave, but he was in the shadow of God's wings and he knew it and he listened to him. So we see God values this inner heart attitude and this extreme faith in God's power and men who know where their source is and and who place obedience in their life, they listen to the still, small voice. And then if you leapfrog into the next book in the Old Testament, Second Samuel chapter 6, there's this cool story of the recovery of the ark. You maybe remember this story. David went, we pick it up in verse 13, he brought the chest of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, and he celebrates, and he's making sacrifices, and he's dressed in this priest's linen. You see the scripture there? He's dancing with abandon before God, and the whole country was with him. Shouts and trumpet blasts, and as the, as the ark of God comes into the, into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, happens to be looking out the window, and she sees King David leaping and dancing before God, and She's kind of disgusted with what she sees. How wonderfully the king distinguishes himself today, exposing himself to the eyes of the servant maids like some burlesque street dancer. She didn't like what David was doing. And David replies, in God's presence, I'll dance all I want. I'll dance to God's glory more recklessly even than this. I'll gladly look like a fool. I think it's cool. I think knowing who David was and and what he was capable of and what he'd done, and yet to see that, that his determination to bless God and to worship him and to praise him and to pray and give thanks to God, and there's a principle there, and it's one that really... Guys, we gotta, we got to own this one. God values men who are not too proud to declare their love and worship to him. Here's one of the greatest fighting men in history... He was rich, he was powerful, he was applauded, but he loved the presence of God. He was ready to to pray and worship and speak. And guys, when you do that, amid all the other things that you may do to provide for your family, when your family know that you are a man who, who is inclined to pray and love the Lord and express yourself to him and honor him and and worship him, and revere him, you're leaving an indelible impression on your family. And then the big story of David, it's the one you probably know more than all the others. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the story of David. While his men are at battle, he's out on the rooftop, and he looks down, and he sees down across the way a beautiful woman who's bathing on the rooftop. And it's not David's woman. And he lusts after this woman that he sees, the wife of one of his fighting men, the scripture says. And because he's the king, he has her brought to him. And he sins with her. 
And there begins to unfold in the life of David this cover-up. seems so unlike him in so many ways. I don't know whether the privilege and the power got to him, whether it was just the weak moment. I mean, the, 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 the sexual sin seems to be one thing, but the willingness to then begin covering things up and, and trying to hide it and the steps that he goes to. I mean, amazing that somebody with such a heart for God has the capacity to, to kind of just, just go way off to the right. Boy, what a, what a, what a warning to us, eh? What a warning to us of what, of what we're capable of doing if we, if we just decide we're, we're going to just go our own way and not God's way. And, and, and David calls Bathsheba's husband home and, and, and tries to get him to sleep with his wife and gets him drunk and he tries to work it all out and, and Uriah won't go with his wife and David knows he's still in trouble and, and so he has this man killed and takes his wife. It's an awful story. And, and chapter 11 ends with this word. Verse 27, God was not at all pleased with what David had done. What a turnaround. And then chapter 12 tells the story of Nathan, the prophet, and David's response. Nathan comes in and lays it out for him. And David, you've got to give him the credit. And really, you've got to give him the credit because how many times have you or I or people you know when, when we're kind of caught red-handed. Boy, it's that old ability to rise up and defend ourselves, or deny it or... <clears throat> David just mans up immediately. There emerges from David this quick and ready repentance. And it's a principle that I think is... God must have known that that was in David's heart. This, this readiness to... Instead of be rebellious, to be repentance, and it shows up in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. These are beautiful words. This is the heart of this man. Because of your unfailing love, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me from my guilt. Let's read this together, can we? Purify me from my sin. Have you got it there? Read it with me. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I'll teach your ways to rebels and they'll return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. And then I will sing joyfully of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O God, O Lord, that my mouth may please you. I love this. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Why did God love this guy? He had this intangible inner posture of heart that pleased God. He, he had this extreme belief in God's power. He 
He knew the source of his help, that it was from God. He placed this high priority on obedience to God. He was not too proud to lift his hands in praise and to pray. And he had this repentant willingness in his life. This guy's name was Curtis Pride. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him. I never had. The Phillies and the Expos were playing. The Expos were at bat, trailing seven to four, and there were two batters on base. The manager sent a rookie pinch hitter to the plate. His name was Curtis Pride. He'd never gotten a hit in the major leagues. He he steps up to the plate, kind of takes his warm-up swings. And on the first pitch, remember, two men on base. They're way behind. First pitch, he hits a double and he scores two runs. And this crowd goes wild. There are 40,000 fans there. They're all cheering for this, this newbie. And in the midst of all the cheering, Curtis Pride is standing there. And eventually the third base coach, coach leaves his position and he walks over to second base and he approaches Curtis and he says to him, take your hat off. Curtis Pride thinks to himself, was there something wrong with my hat? Then he realizes that the crowd's still cheering and the third base coach is saying to him, man, come on, acknowledge the crowd. So the rookie finally grabs his hat and pulls it off and nods to the crowd like he should. After the game, he's surrounded by all these commentators and TV people and And they begin to ask him, could you hear the cheers of the crowd? And it was a good question, really. It wasn't out of line because actually this guy, Curtis Pride, was 95% hard of hearing. So they asked him, could you hear the crowd cheering? And Pride answered this. I love it. Pointing to his heart, he said, I could hear it in here. And the caption in the papers that week read this. Sometimes we hear things the loudest in our hearts. And you know, when you boil down everything that happened in the life of David, you can say that about him. He was a man who heard with his heart. And when you stop and consider it, that's not only what God wants, guys. That's what your wife wants. That's what your son wants and your daughter wants. That's what your mom and dad need from you. They want someone who hears with their heart who know how to tune into the voice of God, whose sensitivity to the Lord and faith and determination to be faithful to the point that he marches to the tune of this different drummer in life, a man who hears things with his heart, a man like David, a man after God's own heart. My prayer today is that God will renew my determination to be that kind of man. And I hope he'll do that to you. Let's commit ourselves to him. We're going to sing a great song that just kind of comes in underneath of those principles and helps you and I express it to God. Let's stand as Pastor Jay leads us, can we?